This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. Parenting is hard. It may not be stop the supervillain and save the entire universe from destruction hard, but it weighs just as heavy on our shoulders. Parenting is what brings us to self-help guides and propels us into conversations with other moms and dads and guardians. Well, beyond advice about diaper brands and prom protocol, what are we looking for when we ask these questions? To know that we're not alone, of course. To be reassured that we're not the only ones afraid of screwing up our kids. To be reminded that even Wonder Woman's mom made mistakes sometimes. When trying to cope with the challenges of parenthood, Geeks and nerds have one advantage over other parents, an archive of fantastic stories about first contacts, epic battles, provocative ideas, and poignant sacrifices, whether it's on the page, on the screen, in four-color drawings, or around a gaming table. These sagas have made geeks and nerds and everybody else around them the people they are, and they're going to make us the parents we want to be. The thing we need to understand, though, is that even when the world is crumbling around us, whether that means the loss of a loved one or a massive cyclone attack on the 12 colonies, we still have these little people entrusted to our care. Not only do we need to shield them from laser fire, but we also have to help them learn to navigate the chaos. Like the wisest wizard or the ablest captain, we try to teach them to keep their light shining bright. We'll start talking about the lessons that we can learn from popular culture when Positive Parenting continues right after this. When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's kind of like an elephant is on my chest. I feel like I'm choking. Sometimes my parents have to take me to the hospital. You know how to react to their asthma attacks. Here's how to prevent them. Call 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. Visit www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many. I feel like a fish with no water. Brought to you by the EPA and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guests for this part of today's show are Stephen Siegel and Valia Dudicilpescu, who are the co-authors of Geek Parenting, what Joffrey, Jorel, Maleficent, and McFlies teach us about raising a family. Hey, welcome, you guys. Thank you for having us. Thank my, you. My pleasure. So tell us about the the idea for this book. I mean, it seems like a, an unusual thing. I mean, you've got chapters in here. We'll get to a lot of this, but about uh, you know the Star Wars characters and all sorts of different people and the lessons that they can teach us. Um, well, a few years ago, uh, I co-wrote a book called Geek Wisdom, uh, The Sacred Teachings of Nerd Culture, which took 200 of the most uh, well-known quotations and sayings from sci-fi movies and comics and other sorts of pop culture sources like that, that, you know, geeks and nerds and people who like that stuff tend to quote at each other a lot. You know, uh, may the force be with you. Um, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Right. Um, and we, we, we took 200 of those you know, really well-quoted quotes that people say as if they come from the Bible or Shakespeare, even though they're much more modern than that, 
And we wrote a page about each one, uh, exploring, you know, what is it about this saying that resonates so much, you know, that, that uh, leads us to use it in our daily lives. Um, and people really liked it. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a fun book, and it did well, and we started talking about, well, that was cool. What if we made it a little more specific? Um, what, if we, uh, what if we took that same sort of concept, you know, finding the wisdom in this geeky pop culture, but applying it in a much more directly practical way. And we realized just how many characters there were out there in comics and fantasy and sci-fi whose family life was on screen somehow. And we said, you know, what if, what if we actually found, you know, the, the life lesson in raising kids from these movies and comics and books and mm-hmm. television shows? Well, and so that's what Valia and I did. Um, we, we sort of sifted through as much of the uh, giant canon of culture that we could find um, to try to put together a list of the hundred, the uh, hundred different families uh, that we found out there um, that had interesting things to say about growing up heroic, about growing up uh, a good person, about growing up, um, right. you know, creative and adventure-minded. Well, Valia, let's talk a little bit about some of these things. What's what's your favorite one out of here, if you had to pick? And I know that's probably an impossible task, but... Oh, it is. It is really tough. Um, it depends on any, any given day. I think one of my favorites is probably the Adams Family, just because of my own set of quirky kids. Um, and the saying is, if they're creepy and they're kooky, then you're the one who's lucky. Uh, because the Adams Family... We're just such a great example of a loving and supportive family. Yeah. Embrace the yeah. kids' individuality, and they were kind and they were generous, and they hold up against modern families. I think they, the lesson stands just as much today as it did back then. So, what does Morticia have to say about parenting? <laughs> well, it's more of the family as a whole, honestly. Um, here she has these cute kids, and they appear unconventional by the standards of their peers, and yet she encourages them to be their own person. She loves them and supports them in their choices. She lets them have the space they need to sometimes make mistakes, hopefully not hurt themselves in the process. And I think that's a great lesson. Now, one of the things that you don't do in here, I think, is explain who these characters are, some of them. And I thought I was kind of up on, on a lot of popular culture, but there, there was one, Yako, Wako, and Dot Warner, along with Dr. Otto Scratch and Sniff. Uh, who, okay. <laughs> so you, you have to identify that particular family. Sure. Um, there, was a, there was a popular uh, kids Warner Brothers cartoon, um, I believe back in the 90s, called Animaniac. Um, which uh, took a sort of next generation approach to um, the traditional, uh, you know, the traditional Bugs Bunny, uh, Daffy Duck sort of crazy, uh, zany TV cartoon shorts. Um, and the stars of the show were this trio of um, you know, this trio of, of goofy cartoon animals, Yakko, Wacko. And dot, and the, the the gag was that their last name was Warner. Was that they were the Warner brothers and sister, um, and so they sort of um, 
they sort of took the traditional over-the-top slapstick cartoonery of the Warner Brothers cartoon, but specifically made it about, um, you know, characters who were children, who were adolescents. Um, so it, you know, it added a bit of a, a parental spin to what we're accustomed to enjoying with that sort of cartoon fun. Okay. All right. So, so let me let me get to one that I think more people are going to recognize, Data and Jean-Luc Picard. They, what they ask us is, are you encouraging them to ask questions? Absolutely. Um, you know, Data, and this is a good example of the sort of thing, um, you know, we tried to find in putting together the book. Data is an android. He's a robot. Um, he's an artificial person. Um, he didn't have a childhood the way we're accustomed to thinking about it in the real world, right? Um, he's a fully built, adult-sized android. Um, but part of what that means is that even though he has the mind of an adult, he has the you know reasoning capacity and the functioning capacity of, a, of, a, of an adult person, he has the innocence of a child. Uh, he doesn't have the sort of experience with the world that grown-ups have. And so even though he can pilot a starship, even though he can transport people you know, uh, from the ship to the planet, even though he can talk with aliens and, and engage in diplomacy, he, he's, never, you know, he, he's never bounced a basketball. Um, he's never heard right. common phrases that we use every day. So, you know, a lot of the relationship on the show with Data involved him asking the sorts of questions that kids ask their parents. And Captain Picard and the other crew members are in the position of having to having to raise him, really. Um, and so we specifically wanted to look at that in the book in the context of taking your children's questions seriously. You know, there's no such thing as a silly question for a kid to ask. They're all really important. Right. Um, and we felt that Data and his crewmates were a really good example of taking your kids' children, taking your children's questions mm -hmm. seriously, um, yeah. and treating them with the respect they deserve, so, and and encouraging them to ask questions. Because I find that today, especially, kids are afraid to ask questions. They're afraid that asking a question will make them seem less intelligent somehow. And so something I've tried to encourage in my own kids, and I also teach college <clears throat> composition, and I see the same thing with grown-up, you know, college freshmen, that they're afraid that by somehow asking a question, they're showing weakness or, or lack of intelligence. And I try to encourage them to, to see that thoughtful questions, provocative questions, show that you're thinking, show mm -hmm. that you're trying to figure things out for yourself. And so they're really, yeah. really important. Well, that fits in with, with one I wanted to ask you about, which is what Dorothy and Auntie Em are teaching us, that whatever Kansas your teen lives in, it feels like a black-and-white town stifling their technicolor soul. I mean, they're, they're, teens are not noted for wanting to stick their head out and ask a question that might draw attention to them. Um, right. So, I mean, that, that was such, such an interesting analogy of life being black and white. Well, and I think that's a common experience. You know, um, you talk to enough people about where they grow up and you start to realize that, well, wherever, wherever they grew up, no matter how exotic a location it was, you know, whether you grew up... Um, you know, whether you grew up someplace mundane like a farm in Kansas or, you know, a coal mining town in rural Pennsylvania or whether you grew up, you know, in New York City um, or, you know, Orlando, Florida, any place you grew up is normal by definition. You know, what, what, you, what you experience when you're little is normal to you. Um, and so it, it seems 
seems as though there's no there's no place so exciting um, that most teenagers don't find it completely boring and maddening and you know oh my god i have to get out of here tomorrow uh, i can't take this place anymore um because they're you know they're hit with the they're hit with the combination of teenage blase and that urge to be becoming something yeah. um, um and it, it felt like the you know the the wizard of oz movie with its um with its black and white setting in the real world where she's living uh with her uncle and aunt um being then transposed into the bright color of Oz uh, was one of the best examples we've ever seen of that being rendered in cinema. Steven Siegel and Valia Dudich-Lupescu are the co-authors of Geek Parenting, What Joffrey Jorel, Maleficent, and the McFlies Teach Us About Raising a Family. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking about geek parenting. My son Casey was a bright, fearless 20-year-old with a boundless future ahead of him. But in the blink of an eye, he was gone. While out riding a skateboard, Casey fell. He was not wearing a helmet. Our whole family wishes he was. It could have saved his life. I'm Captain Kevin Raffelli of the San Mateo Police Department. Parents, encourage your kids to strap on a helmet every time they jump on a bike, scooter, or skateboard. Think of my son Casey and use your head. Put a helmet on. It could save your life. A message from the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Steven Siegel and Valia Dudich-Lupescu, who are the co-authors of Geek Parenting, What Joffrey Jorel, Maleficent, and McFlies Teach Us About Raising a Family. want to jump to Maleficent because you pair her with Aurora, and it seems like a lot of the other ones, you have people who would be on the same side of an argument, but Aurora and Maleficent are about as... as opposite as you could get. Well, you know, this was an interesting case where we were specifically going uh, not to the original, uh, the original Disney movie um, uh, of, of Sleeping Beauty, but to its, um, uh, but to it, its modern retelling in the, uh, in the recent live-action movie Maleficent, with uh, with Angelina Jolie, with Angelina one. Jolie as the character, and you know, we thought this was an interesting one because here's a case where the character, the, the the character we're focusing on in the parental role, is both traditionally cast as a villain um, and is explicitly the the antagonist of the young adolescent character who's who's the hero, uh, Aurora, and. The retelling of the myth, you know, looked a little bit um, more deeply at it from a feminist perspective. Instead of just casting it in the traditional fairy tale, um, you know, oh look, there's an evil queen and she's really a dragon and we have to kill her. Um, it took an interesting tack, we thought, uh, in looking at the question of, well, why is this powerful woman being perceived as a villain? Why is she behaving in roles that are contrary to what the king and the royal family would expect or want, um, and what does that really mean for who she is, and what does it say about her parenting when she finds herself in this role of being an adoptive mother? Uh, and, you know, what, what, what the Maleficent movie really brought to the surface was, well, you know, it's easy to blame people and call them villains when you don't know anything about their life and, 
you know, what's brought them to that place and telling the story of Maleficent from the inside, you know, a lot like the, a lot like the, the Wicked books um, did with The Wicked Witch of the West, um, you know, Maleficent brought us the perspective of, oh, this is a really interesting person who's made really hard choices in her life to be someone who has power and agency in the world. Um, and yeah. so, and so, it you know, also... Oh, sorry. It also illustrated that there are many different paths to parenthood, and that was one of the things we really focused on in the essay, was that there are are so many different ways that families come together, and this one, while a fairy tale version and and unconventional in that way, it showed two people who ended up coming to care for each other very much. It showed this very strong kind of parental love in a way that no one had expected. And so it seemed a really good opportunity to talk about the different ways that families come together and how they look differently than maybe people expected. And so those might be multi-generational families. They may be blended families. They may be polyamorous families. And it seemed a really good example of that. Speaking of multi-generational families, you've got Sam and Michael Emerson and their grandfather. And their lesson is, if your kids' friends are vampires, you're going to want to know that fact ahead of time, which is <laughs> such, I mean, it, it's funny, but it's one of those things, that, you know, I remember getting calls from, from parents, and I thought it was just absurd, but, you know, do you have a gun in the house? Uh, that that sort of thing, before they would let their kids come over for a play date. And, you know, that that message of understand your kids' lives a little bit more than just what's on the surface is a, a pretty powerful one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I, I know Valia has been, you know, uh, uh, recently, um, you know, looking at this sort of thing with, with her kids starting at a new school in a, in a new neighborhood and having a whole new set of friends present themselves. Yes, and trying to find ways to get to know the parents, get to know the kids. Um, I tend to be cautious. I want to make sure that I know where the kids are going to be after school. So I think it's really important to get to know the community that we are a part of and that our children are a part of. So that's, that seems, a, a, again, slightly fantastic version, <laughs> but a still nonetheless a very true one. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, that movie, Lost Boys, it, it's it's such a good example of, you know, again, using the fantastic as a metaphor for what's happening in, in real life. Um, you know, most kids aren't vampires, um, but there are so many, there, there are just so many different um, threats and dangers that can come to kids in the form of secrets and um, motivations and, uh, you know, reasons that the people around them are behaving in ways that might have been invisible to them because they never would have thought of it. Just mm-hmm. like the you know the family in Lost Boys never would have thought that the kids in school right. were, were vampires. You know, I want to get to the McFlys who were on part of the the name of the book, uh, and and they say learning that one's parents used to be dorky kids is a powerful confidence boost, at least one point two one gigawatts worth. And what struck me about this is that it was very much in line with uh, another interview that I did recently with a woman who was talking about risk. And one of her points was you need to kind of risk telling your kids about you and and that you need to, it's a risk in her view, to let them see you make mistakes and let them see that you're human, which is another 
it's one of these things that as adults, we never want to let our kids see that we've made mistakes because we want to be you know, setting the best examples for them. But you can't do that all the time. Right. And I would argue that the best examples are letting our children see how fully human we are, honestly. And part of that is showing them who we were and the mistakes that we've made. And always something I, I started with the kids when, when they were very young is apologizing when I make a mistake because I did not want them to think that their parents were infallible. I thought how better to teach them things like kindness and remorse than by showing that. And I think that we that comes up again and again in the book teaching our children by example is I think one of the most effective ways to teach them and what do you think about Sherlock Holmes Sherlock Holmes is just you could have just written a whole book about that I actually wanted to do a whole <laughs> book on on just Hitchcock movies and and the the lessons that are in there which are so fantastic sure. but what what about Sherlock Holmes well, the interesting thing with the the way that the television show, the BBC show, portrayed his parents, um, I think was unusual in the in the overall mythos to show that here are these intelligent but relatively ordinary parents who have been given this who you know who have been given this child who's brilliant and unconventional, and sometimes that happens. Sometimes we are we have these children in our lives that. Are, feel very much unlike us, and how do we raise them to keep them unique and strong in all of those differences, um, and yet teach them how to function in society and teach them the important lessons? It's something I, I think about with my youngest daughter, who's so fiery and so stubborn <laughs> and challenges authority at every turn, um, and I want to keep her strong and keep her um independent to, to a degree and yet also show her that you have to compromise you have to make choices that take into account other people so it's it's finding that way of navigating um, the expectations of, of family and community with the, the independence and beauty of originality and Sherlock does the, the show at least I think did a good job of showing that and you know one of the things that strikes me about Sherlock is that He's he, he, historically Sherlock Holmes is, is sort of one of the original progenitors of uh, you know uh, of the nerd fiction genres really you know he he's this super smart detective who knows the answers more than anyone else does he he's the original he's the original know it all literally um, right he can identify hundreds of different kinds of tobacco from their ashes and yeah I. I Absolutely, and you know, and and he's the character who, you know, without Sherlock, we we wouldn't have a Spock on Star Trek. We wouldn't have the Doctor from Doctor Who. You know, the, the, this sort of driving fierce intelligence um, to you know master the world by thinking about it um, is is a character that speaks really true to you know to to smart young kids. Um, and I, I think in a lot of ways it, it points out the degree to which in putting together this book. You know, we, we really took the approach that, well, you know, every kid is like a little superhero, really, um, because the powers we have in the world as people are very much like unto the superpowers that, you know, we see um, on television and in the comics and in the movies. Um, and so, you know, a, a lot of the a lot of the, the thinking and writing in this book really does come from the perspective of, you know, not just 
quote-unquote exceptional children as they're identified by, you know, their parents or by the schools. But really, you know, the awareness that all kids are exceptional. It's just a matter of figuring out who they are and what their thing is and what their many things are and how they can wield them in life. And, you know, trying to, you know, trying to encourage the development of their powers at the same time that you're trying to, you know, cultivate the sense of using them for good. Right. Um, and, and that can be a fine line. Um, you know, be all that all right. you can be, but don't step on other people in the process. And I will have to just leave it with this quote from Mr. Spock. Change is the essential process of all existence, which kind of sums up the whole thing in a lot of ways. Stephen Siegel and Valia Dudic-Lupescu, the co-authors of Geek Parenting, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Armin. Thank you. Did you know 26 million Americans have kidney disease and most don't know it? The day I was diagnosed, I didn't know what to do. I called the National Kidney Foundation, and the young lady who answered stayed on the phone with me and walked me through step by step. She, too, was surviving kidney disease. And she showed me there could be life after kidney disease. Visit the National Kidney Foundation at kidney.org. Now you know. Hey, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you've been listening to the show for any time at all, you know that we are big fans of toys and games here. But what could be more important than your family's safety, especially inside your own home? This week, we're going to talk about some great products that are designed to protect you and your children from a variety of hazards, both visible and invisible. The Worry-Free Combination Smoke and Carbon Monoxide Alarm from Kida. This combo smoke and CO alarm is packed with great features, one of the nicest of which is that it has a 10-year battery. Yep, 10 years. That means a whole decade without those annoying twice-a-year, middle-of-the-night beeps that we all know and love. The battery also ensures that your alarms will function even during power outages, which is a time when a lot of fires and carbon monoxide leaks happen. Speaking of alarms... This product also has voice alarms, which announce fire, fire, or warning, carbon monoxide. Since the combo alarm is two units in one, it saves time on installation, because you're putting in one unit instead of two. Costs under $70, and you can get it at your favorite retailer or at kida.com. The worry-free AC-powered plug-in carbon monoxide alarm from Kida. If you already have enough smoke alarms in your home but are missing a CO alarm, this one is for you. Although it's designed to be plugged in, as the name might indicate, this alarm, like the rest of Kida's worry-free line, also has a sealed-in 10-year battery. That eliminates the need for, and the cost of, replacing batteries and makes it impossible to accidentally install the alarm without a battery. Other nice features include a digital display that shows PPM, which is parts per million, levels of CO in your home so you can monitor any changes, and it also has a night light, escape light, that comes on in the dark or under alarm conditions. Under $70, also at Kitta.com. The Remote Link Home Security Camera from Kitta. This is a self-contained security system that is not only wireless, but also wire-free, meaning that you don't need to keep it plugged in all the time. You do need to charge the camera itself, of course, but only once every three months or so. The camera is motion-activated and starts recording the instant something moves. 
works with a free app for Android or iOS that automatically sends notifications to your mobile device or to anyone else you desire. Since you're using your existing Wi-Fi network, there are no monthly alarm monitoring fees, which is a fantastic thing. Costs about $140 at Kitta.com. The Remote Link Smart Home Monitor from Kitta. If an alarm goes off in your home and there's no one there to hear it, what's the point? This small device plugs into an outlet anywhere in your home and listens for your other smoke or CO2 alarms. If it hears something, it automatically notifies you and anyone else, like your neighbors, for example, via the free app. You can even set it to call 911. Like the Remote Link camera, this monitor uses your Wi-Fi network, which again eliminates monthly fees. Safehead Baby from Safehead Inc. Babies and toddlers spend a lot of time smacking their head into things, whether it's the corner of a table, the floor, or the underside of a chair they're crawling under. And while the resulting bumps and bruises are usually pretty minor, they hurt, and they can quickly turn laughter into tears, and yes, sometimes parents are the ones who are crying. Safehead Baby has a solution for this. It's a soft, adorable piece of headgear, kind of like a helmet, but very comfortable and lightweight so your baby won't want to tear it off. Safehead Baby is made of non-toxic materials, and it's designed to protect the forehead without interfering with the baby's vision. Ultimately, the Safehead Baby will give your little one the freedom to roam and will give you one less thing to worry about. Cost costs $49, and you can get it at safeheadbaby.com. You can find a lot more reviews and descriptions of toys and games and activities to do with your kids at parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another segment, but don't go quite yet because there's a lot more positive parenting coming straight ahead. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. In 1977, in Johannesburg, South Africa, an eight-year-old boy picked up the game of golf from his father. By the age of nine, he was already outplaying him. The odds of that same boy then making it to the U.S. and European pro golf tours? One in seven million. The odds of the Big Easy winning the Open Championship once and the U.S. Open Championship twice? One in 780 million. The odds of this professional golfer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 110. Ernie Els encourages you to learn the signs of autism at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brat from the MrDad.com radio network. Hello, welcome back to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brod. The pursuit of happiness has been a central human preoccupation from the time of the ancient philosophers to today's tech gurus whose digital innovations promise ever better lives. And yet, despite all of our progress, we are increasingly hungry for soul-deep happiness. All over the globe, the question of how to be truly happy has taken on new urgency 
From the hallways of Harvard, where the university's most popular course is a class on positive psychology, to the United Nations, where they've actually established a new day called the International Day of Happiness. But what if the secret to lasting happiness is actually simple? In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about happiness, what it is exactly, and how we can get more of it. And we're going to be having a conversation with one of the co-founders of Live Happy Magazine. She's also the author of a brand new book by the same name. And we're going to be taking a look at some of the 10 key practices of happy life, from attitude to gratitude and creativity to connection. She's got some fascinating information for us about the science and the art of happiness. And she's also got plenty of inspirational real-life stories Ultimately, we're going to end up with a lot of practical steps that we can take to achieve deeply fulfilling, joyful lives in our own homes. We'll jump right in when Positive Parenting continues right after this. My son Casey was a bright, fearless 20-year-old with a boundless future ahead of him. But in the blink of an eye, he was gone. While out riding a skateboard, Casey fell. He was not wearing a helmet. Our whole family wishes he was. It could have saved his life. I'm Captain Kevin Raffelli of the San Mateo Police Department. Parents, encourage your kids to strap on a helmet every time they jump on a bike, scooter, or skateboard. Think of my son Casey and use your head. Put a helmet on. It could save your life. A message from the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Hello, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Deborah Heiss, who's the co-founder and editorial director of Live Happy Magazine, and also the author of a brand new book called Live Happy, 10 Practices for Choosing Joy. Deborah, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Let's talk about what you mean by living happy. Is there, can you define that, or is it just one of these things that you kind of know it when you feel it? Well, you know, a lot of people spend their time pursuing happiness in the uh, gleeful, joyful, um, you know, emotional sense. But that's not really what we're talking about at Live Happy. At Live Happy, we really are talking about living a life that um, is satisfying to you, having a life of meaning, having a life of purpose, you know, really feeling grounded that you're on the right path. Okay. And so you are setting about to... Crack the code, I guess. I hate that expression, but that's... <laughs> well, kind of... no, it's not really much of a code as much as it is, you know, a lot of it's just putting into practice things we already know, but maybe we've gotten away from. Um, and there's this great field of study called positive psychology, which has um, gone through and really studied what makes us happy, what, what creates a better perceived well-being. In other words, that we feel better about our lives. And so they've spent a lot of time researching what those things are, and it's really not that surprising. And so what are those things? Well, you know, having a positive attitude. Um, I think, we, you know, we've all heard from pop psychology and from, you know, people forever, having a positive attitude is a key to being happy. But there's also things like expressing your creativity, having the opportunity to express your creativity, spending time practicing gratitude, um, taking care of your health, um, building your resilience, how you deal with rejection and how you deal with failure um, is a big part of gratitude. I mean, a big part of happiness. Um, giving back, giving back to your community, spending your time engaged in things that give to others. Uh, you know, none of these things are surprising, and they're all things we know we should do. 
I think what most of us didn't realize is that by doing those things, it actually um, increases, you know, improves the way we feel about our own lives. Tell us a little bit about the structure of the book. It, it's a collection of essays, and they're, yeah, they're a, categorized into various practices. Yes. It's a, the name of the book is Live Happy, and the subtitle is 10 Practices for Choosing Joy. And each chapter um, is, focuses on one of these. So the, there's a chapter on attitude, there's a chapter on spirituality, there's a chapter on creativity. But the structure of the book is we introduce the concept. We talk about attitude in general, uh, for example, in the attitude chapter. And then there's four stories of people who are, you know, applying the principle of a positive attitude to their life and having great success with it. And then we follow those stories up with the science behind, you know, a lot of the, the studies that have been done, the science behind why attitude works and why you should focus on having a positive attitude as part of your life, um, just to take the attitude chapter. So it really is, you know, both a survey of people who are em, uh, employing this a practice in their life, and the science behind why it works. And then it also includes some tips on things you can do to start right away um, working on that aspect of your life. Okay. Well, let's start at the beginning with attitude. Okay. (laughs) What do you want to know? Uh, (laughs) uh, Nothing affects uh, life more than the way you think about yourself and others. Um, So attitude really is framing, framing the way you approach problems. So it's a really important part of, uh, you know, being happy. It's what happens to you and how you react to it is all based in your attitude. And we've got a great, uh, a great story in there uh, from Hoda Kotb, who I think we all know uh, from the Today Show, uh, from Hoda and Kathy Lee, and her great attitude uh, that she has in life. And there are other stories in there um, about other people who have, you know, used their attitude to uh, – to turn around their businesses. There's a woman named Mary Miller who runs, runs an organization um, of janitors and of uh, cleaning people. And she has al- almost ridiculously low turnover, and it's because she employs attitude as a way to uh, developing attitude, a positive attitude in her workers as a way to improve their, their lives um, through something called a dream program. And what does so, that look like? What does the dream program look like? Yeah, yeah. Well, she focuses on she focuses her employees. Uh, she gives them training and conversations about building the why of why they're working. So when they show up in the office um, or when they show up to do their jobs, it's like, what do you want? What are you trying to get out of this? Why are you doing this? Because obviously, cleaning toilets and sweeping floors is not anybody's dream job. But she she spends time with her employees and puts them on paths towards you know maybe it's paying for their children's college education. Maybe it's moving into a home of their own. But they spend time cultivating the dreams and then building paths for people to achieve them. It could be taking a vacation um, or going back to, uh, a lot of them are immigrants, going back to where where they moved to this country from for a vacation. It doesn't have to be a big thing, Mm -hmm. but she works with her employees on building the why for why they show up for their job every day. So they don't just look at it as, I'm showing up to clean somebody else's toilets. Right. You know, one of the essays in that particular section is by Jason Morrison, who's people, anybody who's had the radio on recently yeah. will, will recognize that name. But I, I remember listening to one of his songs, um, and it, well, besides that there's a grammatical thing in there that really bugs me, but the, the, the idea of just be happy seems so simplistic in a way that it, it trivializes the whole thing, and it's hard to just be happy. It is hard to just be happy. Um, in fact, there's a lot of scientific studies going on that say right now uh, there's some 
really good research that says if your goal is to be happy, you're likely not to be. Um, in other words, because you can never be happy enough. It's kind of like you can never be rich enough. If your goal is to be rich, when do you stop? If your goal is to be happy, how do you achieve? How do you how do you do that? It's not about setting happiness that be happy as a goal. It's about building a life of of meaning and, and purpose and building the life that you want and understanding that that is happy. And and so when he talk, you know, when we say be happy, I think a lot of us are thinking, oh, we need to be smile and laughing and giggling all the time. That's not what it is. Um, be happy a lot of times is being grateful for where you are and what you have. Um, you know, I've given a lot of a, a, a lot of interviews where people are like, well, how do you deal with this angry person? Or how do you deal with this person? Or how do and the reality is it's how you frame your thinking. So training yourself to, if you're stuck in traffic and the person cuts you off, training yourself to be not emotionally reactive to that and be angry, but think, you know what, I live in, I live in this country, I'm driving to work, I'm in a car, I have a job, I have, you know, I have a lot of good things in my life. That person cutting me off in traffic probably is not going to derail my day. But if you're someone who doesn't practice that and you take the, everything that happens to you as a negative react, you know, as, as something to react to, it's very easy to get away from that. Um, so, yeah, it's difficult to just be happy, but it's not – I don't want to say it's not difficult, but it's, it's not complicated to reframe your thinking about the world. Give us a little bit of a sense of the science behind the, the next one, which is connection. Another well, uh, another practice that's related to happiness. Well, I love I love the science in that particular chapter. Um, there's a woman named Barbara Fredrickson. Uh, she's a, a professor of psychology at uh, University of North Carolina, and she she wrote this book called Love 2.0. And this is based on the idea that connection to others brings us the greatest happiness in life. But Love 2.0 really is the concept that every interaction that you have with someone can be a positive interaction and can bring happiness into your life. It doesn't have to be, you know, we talk about love, we talk about, you know, with our, with our spouses, with, with our children, with our family members, but you can exchange a moment of love with someone while you're buying a cup of coffee in the sense that you could share a joke, you can smile at each other, you can improve each other's day. Um, so the, the science really shows us that building positive relationships, even if they're micro-relationships, you know, those little bitty contacts we have with people every day, is one of the keys to our happiness. Um, there's not an exact number here, but her estimate is that about 80% of the, of the contacts you have with people on a daily basis need to be positive for you to have a positive outlook on life. Now, that, that, that's kind of, oh, my God, I, you know, I, I encounter these negative people all day long. But the reality is you're kind of in control of whether the reaction's positive or not, how you mm -hmm. approach the situation. Yeah. Um, you can have a positive interaction even if the other person doesn't initiate it that way. So just... You know, how we connect and relate to others, um, all of the science shows us that this is probably the core, uh, you know, the core thing we need to work on, or the core thing that will bring us happiness is having positive relationships in our life. <laughs> in terms of it as, when I interact with people, it needs to be in a positive fashion. really is a different way of thinking about it. I'm talking with Deborah Heiss, who is the co-founder and editorial director of Live Happy magazine and also the author of Live Happy. 10 Practices for Choosing Joy. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Deborah Heiss about her book and about a lot of the science behind many of the things that we should be doing. I'm Armin Brat, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. 
luck and you drive. So let's make a deal. I'll watch for you and cross the street safely. You watch for me and stop. Think of the impact we can make. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Deborah Heiss, who's the co-founder and editorial director of Live Happy magazine and also the author of Live Happy, a brand new book. The subtitle is 10 Practices for Choosing Joy. You know, I wanted to get on to some of the other aspects or the other practices that you talk about. And you know, gratitude is something that comes up a lot in conversations these days. I mean, it wasn't that terribly popular. I'm sure, well, the concept was popular, but the, the science behind gratitude. Talk about that and, and how important that is and how much it affects your life as the person who's being grateful. Well, for me, um, gratitude is something that is easy, easier to implement personally. I don't think it's easy to implement for everybody, but for me, it's easy to thing to implement in your life. And when I really started looking at positive psychology before we came up with um, Live Happy magazine, you know, gratitude and the, the study of gratitude really, you know, kind of hit me square in the face. That this is something that if we just practiced it, the world would be a much nicer and um, happier place. You know, what they what they've shown, what the research has shown us, kind of to oversimplify it, is there's a connection between expressing gratitude and the way your brain works. Like if you're grateful for something, you almost can't be negative. Um, it's, it's a habit that's easy to develop. Um, but you know, scientists have learned that, for example, that people with higher gratitude levels show more activity in the hypothalamus. That's important because the hypothalamus is the control center for everything from functions like eating, drinking, and sleeping, and metabolism to, to regulating metabolism and stress levels. Stimulating the hypothalamus has proved to improve sleep, lessen physical discomfort, and mm. lower stress and anxiety. Well, do you have to be grateful for anything in particular, or do you have to be grateful in terms of the person that you happen to be sitting across from, or is it just the general attitude in the back of your mind you're thinking how fortunate you are? It, it really is. Um, you can be grateful for anything. Uh, probably the best exercise and the simplest exercise that someone can start with that wants to you know, begin creating a happier life for themselves or begin to put into practice some of these things in, in the book. Probably the simplest one is to, every day for three minutes, write down three things you're grateful for. Be specific. Not, I'm grateful for my child, although we should all be grateful for our children, but I'm grateful that my son remembered to pick up his socks. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be anything complex. What it has to be is training your brain to think in a positive fashion about these things. And there's studies that show that if you just do that activity for 21 days, your happiness level, your perceived overall well-being improves. Wow. Now, you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation about resilience being one of the components of happiness, I guess. Talk about that one, because I think that that is, is so hard, and I guess it, it's in a way 
goes along with the gratitude part of it is that you know if you're focusing on all the negative things, it's hard to come back from that. So gratitude can certainly help you with resilience. But resilience by itself is an important thing. You know, one of the first um, articles that we did, uh, I think it was in the second issue of Live Happy magazine, we started putting the magazine together, was an article called The Science of Post-Traumatic Growth. Um, and what it shows us is that if we can be resilient, if we can go through resilience, negativity actually, we actually end up better off um, emotionally and, uh, it, you know, better off perceived well-being, higher perceived well-being after we've gone through something that most people would say I could never recover from that. Now, I'm not saying that everybody needs to go out and create tragedy for themselves, but it's good to know that even if you're in, in the midst of tragedy or you're in the midst of something that um, is, is really negative, that you can bounce back. Now, there's a lot of uh, study on how to develop resilience going on right now. Angela Duckworth has a new book coming out called Grit, which really focuses on that. Um, but research on resiliency really shows us that every person has an innate capacity for it. It's really figuring out how to you know, activate this capacity. Um, you know, creating resilience building conditions in your life, you know, relying on, um, on, on friends, relying on, uh, you know, building your strengths around coming, coming back from that. It's a really complex, um, really complex thing, but studies show us that, you know, th that if you can build resilience, that's a key factor towards being happiness. You know, one of them is maintaining, you know, you know, finding your, you know, finding your people, right. so to speak, you know, people that can support you, maintaining your attitude. Sure. Um, all of these things are, are, you know, kind of putting into place everything else that's in the book, I guess, is the best way to put it. But right. You, yeah, they all, they all link together in many ways. They do. And but how does, oh, go ahead. No, that's right. Well, I was going to say, how does creativity fit in here? That seems to be slightly off the, the track. <laughs> it does. It does. It's an interesting um it was an interesting dialogue when we were discussing whether or not to include that chapter in the book, because it is a little bit um, off, so to speak, meaning it's not a practice that most people look at as, oh, this is something that I need to do right now. But studies show us that activating our creative brains, and that doesn't mean you have to be an artist or a singer, although, of course, most of the people that we include in that chapter are deploying that aspect of their brain. It could You could be a great problem solver. You could just have time to think. But activating your creative brain um, gets you out of that day-to-day -day sort of, hey, I've got to get this done, I've got to get that done, I've got to get this done. And creativity really, expressing your creativity, um, it's not as much as it, it adds to your happiness, as much as if you suppress it, you, you decrease your own happiness, if that makes sense. So it's, right. it's, about, it's about imagination. Um, and what about people who don't think that they're terribly creative? Oh, everybody's creative somehow. Um, it could be, you, you know, it could be learning a new skill or a hobby. It doesn't have to be um, sitting down and painting or sitting down and writing. Um, it could be just just creating something with your hands. It could be, you know, it could be, um, you know, planting a garden. It could be anything, but it really does elevate your mood to express your creativity, and it improves your overall life skills. It can improve your problem-solving skills. Hmm. Um, and we only think certain types of people are creative, but pretty much everybody has a creative portion of their brain. It's really just uh, kind of tap into it. And one of the great thing, um, one of the great great things I think it, in the book is it says um, 
we need we need to be not be so busy being grown-ups sometimes just hmm. playing you know yeah. <laughs> playing is creativity right well another similar kind of a thing at least in, in terms of we have to stop be, be being busy doing something is mindfulness where it's okay to be busy doing nothing it is very and mindfulness has two aspects for it one is the being busy doing nothing you know the meditation the doing that the my, you know and that for a lot of people is like well that uh, that's kind of difficult for me i can't really do that and there's a lot of meditation practices out there that take 5 minutes that people can start with but the other part of mindfulness is being present. And um, this is something I, I, I enjoy talking about because it's something that I've, I've really been able to put in um, practice in my own life since we started working at Live Happy and I started really thinking about this, which is if you're sitting um, at the table with someone, pay attention to them. If you're having a conversation with your – like I go – I'm going to go this afternoon to watch my son play a hockey game. I'm not going to look at my phone while he's playing hockey. I'm going to enjoy the fact that he's playing hockey. My phone will be there. My emails will be there later. But being physically present and being mentally present once you're engaged in is really important. I heard Tom Rath speak earlier this year, and he, he, he made the statement, and I thought it was really profound, that one of the most difficult things over the next 10 years that we can do might be to be just simply paying attention to the person sitting across from us because we have so much distraction in the world. But being fully present enhances that conversation, makes that person feel good, makes you feel better, you learn something, and you build that deep connection, which is in the, you know, which is in the connection chapter. But also being fully present in the task you're doing. Right. You know, we all have this thing about multitasking. I don't know about you, but I'm, you know, I might get email, I get a phone call. I, oh. I well, yeah. I, I have these arguments with my daughter about the, the fantasy of multitasking. She believes that she can. I don't believe that it's possible. I... I, I don't believe it's possible. I think it's, you know, you're micro-slicing your time. If you could really be present in the task you're engaged in, you're going to do that task better, and it's probably going to take less time. Um, <laughs> yeah, because you're, you're actually getting disjointed and you're slightly losing track of things. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not an easy thing to do. So mindfulness is really more than just meditation. That's a piece right. of it. But, you know, this whole engagement, you know, being engaged in what you're supposed to be doing. Deborah Heiss is the author of Live Happy. She's also the co-founder of Live Happy magazine and the editorial director there. Thanks very much for joining us. Great to have you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.